Okay, I've pressed record. Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you doing this day? Great, you decided to uh, give this another try for another week. I did, I guess. I mean, school hasn't officially started yet, so uh, we'll see how that looks in another, I don't know, two, three weeks. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the way I'm managing so far. Uh, thesis is coming on, along nicely. Workload is manageable. Um, I don't know. I'm, you know, grades just came in yesterday, so I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So oh, good. Uh, we'll just see what I can do. Yeah, and I'm so glad that we had so many listeners for our first episode of the year. We're going to have a great mm. year. Like, the New Testament is the one year that I know the best. So It really going- is. Like, if y'all don't remember, Derek is, like, his area of expertise is being a New Testament scholar. So uh, this is, this year the getting is good when it comes to Derek's knowledge. If y'all thought he knew a lot before, Uh-oh. just wait until you hear him talk about the New Testament. Yeah, I could talk on and on. We should get started, though, because I'm going to end up having a lot to say, especially the less I plan, the more I have to say. So (laughs) interesting how that works. But yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, Derek, you got any prefatory words you want to say about uh, Matthew 2 and Luke 2? That's what we're in today, right? Matthew 2 and Luke 2. Yes. So I there's there's a benefit to reading the Gospels all in one sitting or as close as you can in order to get the whole experience of one gospel to see what that author's themes are, what their, uh, just the narrative arc of their whole plot and, and how they characterize things. But the way we do it in Come Follow Me is different. We kind of chop up the gospels and put them together, some of the same material in all four Gospels or wherever it appears in the Gospels and putting them together. And there's a benefit to that, too. I'm not saying one is better than the other. You definitely should read each Gospel on its own terms as a continuous narrative. But we should also read them together because that's how we get some light on what their individual human fingerprints are. And you can see when you compare them, especially in a in a synopsis where you literally have the texts aligned word by word to see what did they change, what did they keep the same, what are their redactional tendencies, which is a, a fancy word for, as an editor, what are they changing? What are they emphasizing? What are they updating? And so you can see also uh, their sources, like where are they using different sources? How are they, what are they adding to the, to the common tradition? And I just love that we get multiple portraits of Jesus. We do not have a case where Jesus wrote anything in any of our New Testament documents. Like, he could have written, you know, we could have just had the whole New Testament written by him. But there's something beautiful and special by having it filtered through the testimony of the first generations of Christians because we get the impact of Jesus on their lives. That's what we get. And so we can relate to that. We can see how God's uh, kingdom, I'm I'm using the word kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-M, to be less patriarchal and less monarchical and less imperial. The kingdom, this beautiful family we have together, that is breaking into the world in Jesus, and it has an effect on people's lives. So that's kind of what I wanted to say. We can be thankful that this Come, Follow Me curriculum is done sort of as gospel parallels. Mm. I guess I'll just go ahead and jump in to Matthew 2, and this is the famous visit of the Magi to Bethlehem under the jurisdiction of Herod, the puppet king. Now, Herod, of course, had no right to be the king of Israel. 
He was not of even any royal line at all, of much less was he descended from David. He was a military leader that was installed by Rome as this puppet king. And not a Jew. He, he's, he has partial Jewish ancestry, but he's not, okay. a, not a, a full Jew, I guess is what you would say. Okay. Now, you see that Herod gets afraid, right? He, Herod gets afraid by the coming of the wise men and the announcement of this new king. Like, well, well boy, that's, that's, uh, that's something to be afraid about it. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 3, when King Herod heard this, that is, the, the Magi coming, saying, where's the one born king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, he was alarmed in all Jerusalem with him. This goes back to this pattern of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. So Herod is comfortable and he's going to be afflicted. And then we will see uh, people on the margins, such as Anna and the shepherds being comforted later when we get to Luke. But anyway, this reminds me that uh, all revelation in these chapters, last week's chapters, Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and also this week's chapters, Luke, uh, Matthew 2 and Luke 2, all the revelation in these chapters happens outside official channels. We've got dreams and angels pouring out from heaven, private revelation to Joseph, private revelation to the Magi, the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, angels visiting the shepherds, Zechariah's vision in the temple. All these things are personal revelation. So we have this witness in the New Testament about the, the priority and the power of personal revelation as opposed to and in contrast to any general revelation for the whole church through specific channels. And of course, I'm not going to talk about this too much, but remember our good friend Cornelius in Acts 10, he got the revelation before mm. Peter did that the Gentiles were included and had a place and his his prayers were heard. Like there's room for Corneliuses in the church. In fact, the church wouldn't be what it is without Corneliuses. <laughs> good and point. so People say, "Oh, Derek, you're you're trying to you're claiming you're receiving revelation for the whole church." I'm really not claiming to receive revelation for the whole church. That's a much longer conversation. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, I'm testifying to what I can see and what the Lord is doing in my life, and I'm asking the leaders for revelation. That's different. Saying, "Hey, look, we got to do this," is not the same. In fact, it's the opposite. Right? I'm claiming that. Queer families should be sealed in the temple. I am not saying that, okay, here's what receiving revelation for the whole church would look like if that's what I'm doing, okay? People are going to think I'm an apostate receiving revelation for the whole church, but I'm really not. (laughs) This is what it would look like. If I went up to the Boston Temple president and and I said to the temple president, hey, you can go ahead and start sealing gay couples because I told you you could. Because God whispered to me, and now I'm whispering to you, you can do it without waiting for anything from Salt Lake, just because I said it. That is what receiving revelation for the church. I'm not claiming that. I haven't marched into the temple president's office and said you can do it based on my authority. What I am saying is this needs to change. It's obvious that it needs to change, and I'm asking the leaders for revelation. That is totally faithful, totally faithful. I don't know why people are questioning my faithfulness. And people say, oh, it's inappropriate to ask the leaders for revelation. That's how everything ever happened. We've covered this in the Hebrew Bible year. We've covered this before. I'm not going to waste too much time on it. But I just want to add something that one of my friends reminded me. Like every time a person submits mission papers, 
They are literally asking the apostle and the prophets to receive revelation on their behalf. That is totally fine. Like whenever people uh, file a, a petition with the first presidency for a ceiling cancellation or a ceiling clearance in order to um, in order to marry in the temple, they are asking the prophet literally for revelation. Like it is not wrong to to like say we have a prophet and then use that, right? I'm going to the prophet, right? Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of accountability where I can have this line directly to President Nelson. If I if I did, he he would hear from me all the time, just like you hear from me all the time, and I'm, I get pretty annoying, right? <laughs> but anyway, so that's I'm getting way off the, the topic from from Matthew two. But what I wanted to say is look at all these this rich unfolding of personal revelation that ends up being a leading factor in a witness towards the whole people of God. So um, I want to read this carol of color. I'm assuming, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm assuming that people know the story of Matthew 2, or at least they're, they're, they've read it or they're going to read it. Um, but this is where the Magi come. Uh, to Herod's court and say, hey, look, we've, we're looking for the one who is to be born king of the Jews. And they ask where he is. And then they end up sending him, uh, sending the, the wise men to Bethlehem. I want to read this poem by an African-American woman named Mary Janice. She was a Harlem Renaissance poet. And this is called A Carol of Color. Remember, Harlem Renaissance time, I mean, you don't have to remember this, but our listeners, this is not the best time to be black in America, right? I guess there's probably never a good time to be black in America, but this is this is a time of of significant discrimination, right? Outright legal uh, discrimination. Here we've got a carol of color. Here's what it says. It's in the voice of the three wise men. Now, I should pause and say that traditionally there are three. There are three gifts numbered in the text, but mm-hmm. they're not uh, – the wise men are not numbered. They're also not gendered. It's a masculine plural in Greek, which could cover a mixed gender group of mm-hmm. uh, more than one person. A group of men and women together often gets the, the masculine plural, just like a lot of modern European languages as well. But anyway, so mm-hmm. here we've got this traditional three – Maybe based on the three, uh, num- the the three gifts: gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But here's what it says, and of course, I, my voice isn't as good as your yours, but I'm going to read it anyway. A carol of color. I may not sleep in Bethlehem. Your inns would turn me back because, said Balthazar, unsmiling, my skin is black. I may not eat in Bethlehem. Your inns would frown me down because said Melchior, uncomplaining, my skin is brown. Alone I ride to Bethlehem, alone I there alight, because, cried Gaspar, all unheeding, my skin is white. Not one, not two, but three they came to kneel at Bethlehem, and there a brown-faced Christ child laughing welcomed them. Now, I just love this poem. It's, uh, it gives you the hypothetical of what would happen if you had discrimination in Bethlehem and the black and brown folks weren't allowed to come. Here we've literally got people from other countries, pr- presumably Gentiles, although Matthew doesn't quite say that for sure, but it, we presume from that the they're, they're likely Gentiles. 
Yeah. And they're coming. That you've got diversity built in, baked into what the gospel does when it impacts this world. Like we've got the liberation and the inclusion of all peoples. Speaking of inclusion, there's this Latin word inclusio, which means uh, kind of a sandwich structure where you have the beginning and the end and then something included in the middle. We see this with the wise men, presumably Gentiles in Matthew 2, coming and worshiping Christ. And then we have Jesus and the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the last chapter, where you have this commission, go and teach and make disciples of all nations, right? All nations, panta ta ethne, all the Gentiles, right? So you've got this this beginning and end. We've got some not so much inclusion of Gentiles in the middle of Matthew. There's a little of that. Generally, that's a mission to the to the Jewish people. But we've got this beginning and end bookmarks, including the uh, this this lovely ethnic diversity, this multiracial family of what the family of God should be like. Now, I've been reading part of the First Nations translation or the First Nations version. It is an indigenous translation of the New Testament into English based on the principles of Native American storytelling and culture. And they translate the word ecclesia, traditionally translated as church, they translate it as sacred family. I love that that aspect of it because it gets the togetherness. The church is a family. Um, Another good inclusio in Matthew is the God with us. That is, um, in Matthew 1, you've got Emmanuel translated as God with us. And then at the very end in the Great Commission, final words of Jesus, lo, I, I am with you. Here we've got God dwelling with us in the person of Jesus always. Mm. Did you know, by the way, that the wise men were firefighters from Texas? Hold up, what? Yeah, the wise men were firefighters from Texas because the Bible says they came from afar. Dang it. (laughs) Just one more thing I want to say is uh, uh, in this narrative, we've got literally the Holy Family being refugees. It's not safe to go mm. back to um, back to Judea. Mm-hmm. Archelaus is, is reigning in, in the uh, stead of his father, King Herod the Great. And mm-hmm. so they go to Egypt. Now, there, there was a large population of Jews, diaspora Jews, in Alexandria, Egypt at this time. So they, I don't, we don't know where they went, but, but there may have been room for them to go and, and be in Egypt outside of the ju- jurisdiction of of Herod. Now this is the new Herod. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, out of Egypt have I called my son. This is quoted in Matthew 2. Uh, yeah, verse Hosea, 15. right? Yep. And yeah. the, this, of course, ties it back to Israel's foundation narrative of being liberated from slavery in Egypt. And, of course, this resonates with the liberation of all peoples everywhere that need liberation. But, of course, our um, our black siblings here in the United States and liberation from slavery. So that's just kind of all I wanted to say about Matthew. Let me see where we are on time because I'm, I'm trying We're to... We're doing all right. Oh, we good. Only about We're doing all right. In. Okay, I'm basically... I mean, I could go on and on and on and on, but we're going we're gonna to move on to, to Luke. Wonderful. I love Luke. Luke. Luke is my guy, bro. So I'm excited to talk about Luke. Well, do you want to go first? Why don't I? That sounds like a good idea. 
Um, but anyway, we're only in Luke chapter two now, but we're still going to see Luke's particular writing style and uh, the things he likes to focus on relatively early in this chapter as well. Uh, just a little background, and we're going to get into this a little bit more. Uh, census had been decreed, so everybody got to go back to their hometown. I don't know why exactly that is. Why couldn't they just do the census in uh, Nazareth where they resided instead of like going back to their hometown or you know, the city of David, which is Bethlehem? I'm not entirely clear about that, but there seems to be some kind of either theological or historical reasoning for them having to go like 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. Um, but I wanted to highlight the uh, number of contradictions that are seen in the uh, in the text, at least implicitly, uh, that the uh, that Luke seems to be drawing our attention to. Uh, one of these is found in verse seven. Uh, let me just go ahead and uh, read this verse. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Luke takes care to let us know, for, first of all, there's nothing miraculous about the birth itself. Like about the conception, yes, but about the birth itself, nothing miraculous there. And then Luke takes care to let us know that Jesus is the firstborn son for no apparent reason until we get to the end of the sentence, which, which tells us that he's wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a feeding trough for livestock. So like what we're mm -hmm. seeing is the firstborn son, meaning a position of privilege and high regard in Jewish families being treated this way, like no coat of many colors, no position of privilege, not even a home for them and not even a like cradle or anything. It's literally a feeding trough for livestock that the savior of the world is being laid in, that the firstborn son is being laid in. Now, there is a frequent abasement of the firstborn son in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Like we see it mm -hmm. a lot, but we don't usually see it this early. And the savior of the world upon his entry into the world is immediately stripped of privilege, something that Luke seems keen on telling us, which is something that we should keep in mind. And there's a couple things in verses uh, 10 and 11 that are also worth highlighting. And uh, one brief thing to highlight is the uh, subversive nature of the angel's words. Subversive because of the backdrop of Luke. And I want to say a little bit more about this because it includes subjugation, uh, tax burden, and worship of the Roman imperial cult, for lack of a better word, that is enforcing those things. We, we talked about this a bit last week when we highlighted the context in which Elizabeth and Zechariah were living and ministering in. It was a context of oppression that uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah had to minister in. This whole census that Joseph and Mary have to register for so that Roman Empire can further tax Israel to live more comfortably themselves and bring glory and popularity to the Roman emperor who is referred to as, quote, the son of God, quote, the savior who will bring peace to the world and whose arrival into this is heralded as, quote, good news. Those words, by the way, if you've already read Luke 2, should sound familiar. Now, let me read from Luke 2, starting in verse 10. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is the Messiah, the Lord, close quote. And now we go down to verse 14. We see the use of the word peace, heralding in of peace, as well as Luke's use of the title son of God back in uh, Luke 1 verse 35. Now, all of this put together, all four of those themes being repeated, all but confirms that Luke is actively undermining the Roman imperial cult, which is in full effect at this time. Let me read you some of the birth announcement of Caesar Augustus from around this time. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. Uh, skipping down a few lines, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times, close quote. So Augustus is the one referred to as the savior in Rome. He is the one that's the great source of peace. He is the son of God. He is the savior. Because he is the one who put an end to war, quote unquote, who set all things in order. Now, the fact that Luke uses the same language as imperial propaganda to herald the arrival of the actual savior, it makes Luke some of the most subversive literature in the New Testament. One of the most subversive, one of the most subversive gospels, if not the most subversive gospel. The claims of the Roman imperial cult are turned all the way upside down by uh, by a child that was born into the system of oppression that Romans themselves created. And Luke using this language, this propaganda language, was a not-so-subtle jab at that system. He almost seems to be mocking it. But uh, either way, he's making a statement that puts him at odds with the Roman, the Roman Empire almost immediately out the gate that's intended to discourage empire worship and encourage uh, Christ worship. And uh, you know what? One more thing about this, actually, since mm -hmm. I'm feeling a little froggy. Let, while we're talking about imperial religious cults, bastardizing language reserved for the worship of the divine, let me talk about America for a second. Oh, just, just a little yes. second. Amen. We got to talk about um, America. Yeah. Like one of my least favorite times to go to church is the week of Independence Day. I, I mm -hmm. don't know if you've had similar experiences, but listening to people get up to the pulpit, express gratitude for this land that we live on that was given to us, supposedly, the freedoms that we enjoy, as well as listening to them bear testimony of the divinity of the Constitution and the inspiration of Columbus and having to sing the national anthem or America the Beautiful. That that makes me wonder if there are purpose, if there are like, like, did I walk into church? Like, did, did, were there pictures of Jesus in the foyer or bald eagles in American flags? Like, what did I walk into? It, it's like, this conflation of God with empire or the idea that God has given us empire, it's, it's disquieting to the point where, where, where the line between uh, Roman empire and American empire is like blurring in terms of the cultural context that Luke is writing against. Like Rome, a lot of what we have in America came at a cost. Black enslavement, indigenous extermination, for example. Many of the privileges that we enjoy today as Americans fuel the impression of many across the globe, just like the Roman Empire's wealth and privilege came at the expense of Israel and other nations. As, as we move forward in the New Testament, especially in Luke, 
um, Jesus's ministry is going to challenge imperial reality, the reality that shows us peace and security, but perpetuates suffering elsewhere. He'll, he'll challenge us to undo oppressive elements of empire. Luke's use of imperial propaganda language is a call for us to render to God the things that are actually God's and don't give them Mm -hmm. to Caesar. Don't give them to empire. That includes our worship. It's a call to identify ourselves as disciples, not of empire, but of he who was born and raised in the margins Mm -hmm. of empire and ministered there too. That same empire, by the way, has Jesus's blood on its hands. And if we're not careful, that same blood can wind up on ours if we don't take Jesus's challenge throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospel of Luke, to heart. We are going to see him challenge empire. We are going to see him challenge privilege. We are going to see him literally name the kingdoms of the world once we get to Luke 4 as kingdoms of the devil. Like It is a call to be careful, and it is a call to remember who we serve, because this kind of conflation of empire and God, this uh, conflation of God and country, like that is one of the most dangerous things. I, I think like last year, like three different books about uh, evangelical nationalism came out and the role of Christianity in that, the role of uh, American history in that. And I legitimately get scared of it and like dread it every time Independence Day rolls around in church, because those are the times where I'm reminded that, you know, we got some work to do in terms of resting ourselves from the cult of empire and bringing ourselves back to the religion of Christ, which uh, rests on the margins of that empire. So, um, yeah, that that's all I wanted to say about this backdrop of empire. There are some things I'm going to want to say about the shepherds, but do you have any immediate thoughts about what I just said? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts, but I'll try to make it quick. I don't, right. this is not an excuse. In fact, but we have to understand where the baggage comes from in order to, 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 to undo it. It, the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was was conditioned by a lot of misunderstanding, persecution, and as a response to that, Latter-day Saints had to uh, felt they felt pressure to prove that they were loyal to America, right? And so that's the background of our twelfth article of faith. We believe in being mm-hmm. subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Now, there's an asterisk to this because this is not exceptionless. Like even Oaks, I should start a podcast called Even Oaks on the parts where (laughs) Oaks and I agree. Oaks is very clear about this, that this, uh, the the authority of, of secular rulers is not absolute. He's very clear about this. There's some times where you must disobey the the law. You must disobey Uh the kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, whatever. Right, and uh, the sad thing about this is, Latter Day Saints haven't done a good a jo- good enough job of leaning into those exceptions and figuring out when, um, like in general, we want to be law abiding, but there's times yeah. when yeah. we shouldn't, like Nazi Germany, like so many mm. Latter Day Saints. I mean, there weren't many Latter Day Saints in Germany at the time, but the ones that were there were mostly on board with trying to appease and please the Nazis and prove that they were good, um, good, faithful, Hitler-obeying Germans. I'm like, no, that's gross, right? You mm. cannot serve God and mammon. You can't, like, you, you cannot, no one can serve two masters. You've got to serve Christ above all. And I think that's where we've, we've gotten it 
wrong is um, not challenging and cross-examining our our tradition on this, and and and, and having a clear a clear policy of when we need to disobey. That's what I love about the Quakers, about the mm-hmm. historic peace churches, about the Jehovah's Witnesses um, in in Germany uh, and elsewhere. Right not even saying the pledge of allegiance uh there's just there's just things that we could do a little better um and the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints has had a big problem with militarism in part because the early saints felt that they needed to respond with arms uh, to protect their people and uh i'm like well that that sets a bad precedent right uh we've got now um, the Mormon battalion, like trying to prove you're 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 American by by fighting on the like. There's just so many ways that our history has led us to not thoroughly critique our our uh, the the mess that we inherited, and we've inherited yeah. this this mess um, around yeah. obedience. Now let's talk. Let's go talk about obedience. Um, and Jesus was not obedient, at least in any uh, obvious easy sense. I think he was obedient to God and the ultimate principles right. of ethics, but he was not obedient right. to what people thought the law wa- was. He, was, oh, he broke know, a lot of yeah. rules. <laughs> Basically, nice people don't get themselves crucified. Obedient, non-troublemaking people don't get themselves crucified. Uh, he, dese- mm. he desecrated the temple. He challenged Rome's authority. He healed mm-hmm. on the Sabbath. He, he did a whole bunch of stuff that yep. people saw was disobedient was disobedient and of course Mm -hmm. one thing is look at herod and herod the great now and the wise men so herod said report to me and and then the angels went there and then they were obedient to god rather than herod because took a different route they took a route they were warned in a dream not to go back to herod and tell him Mm -hmm. not to threaten the christ child so uh so yeah, they disobeyed Herod. There's times where yep. we've got to disobey authority. Um, now that's tough because you have to have a consistent and thoughtful and reasoned and principled thing about when you're going to disobey authority. You can't just, I, I would never say, I'm just going to randomly disobey authority when I feel like it. I need to do better. I need to do the work, the philosophical, theological, and ethical work to say, when am I going to disobey secular authority? And when am I going to disobey the, the prophet, right? Uh, that's that's a longer conversation, but but yeah. So the so the magi were disobedient, and I loved how you brought out uh, the contrast between Caesar and Christ, which is absolutely clear mm-hmm. in Luke too. Uh, opening up with Caesar now, Octavian, who ruled uh, ro- who ruled Rome at the time, is the exact embodiment of claiming privilege and grabbing privilege. Octavian is also called Caesar Augustus. Mm-hmm. And he like with armies with he he claimed he was the first emperor of Rome. Julius Caesar was a dictator but he was not an emperor. Like Octavian was the one who like grabbed it all. He grabbed Caesar's titles, he grabbed military power, he grabbed wealth, he grabbed everything. He grabbed like uh, uh, almost uh, yeah it's just amazing how he grabbed privilege and you you and I I remember being shocked I'm I'm glad that you quoted all of these parallels between the uh the celebration of of Caesar and all of the titles that were given to Caesar and then the titles that Luke is claiming for for Jesus 
Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I saw a Roman coin with the Greek words, huios theou, on them in Greek. I'm like, mm. that means the son of God. And this was a yep. title of the emperor on a yep. Roman coin. Yep. In Greek. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is, these are the coins that were circulating in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, in the, in the West, they used Latin. But in the East, they used Greek. And, like, just to have a world where Son of God already meant something. See, that's what we're yep. missing here in America. Son of God, everyone thinks of Jesus. Son of God was already, already had an established meaning, and Luke is claiming it for Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is profound. Like, that, yep. that's... Very like, subversive. Yeah, very subversive. Um, let's see, there's... Yeah, I wanted to name something very interesting about the shepherds. Were you going to go on to the shepherds? I was going to go on to the shepherds. Yeah, I want to say one thing about the shepherds. One is... Say um, something about the shepherds. When you look at Luke 2, verse 8, there's something that almost no English translation brings out. It says, Now there were shepherds living uh, living nearby, living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock by night. Uh, the, The King James has keeping watch, I think. But what's interesting is that watch, the word for watch is plural in Greek, phulasantes phulakas. They were watching watches, plural, of the night. So the night was divided up into four watches, and they would take turns. Like if you're a shepherd, you've got to take turns watching for um, any predators, any uh, any thieves, any any danger, anything to take. You have to have someone awake at all times watching the sheep. So they literally took turns, and I was thinking to myself, this is a beautiful moment about God's grace because who were the shepherds that were asleep when the angel came? Who were the shepherds that were awake? It, it's almost random, right? Who got yeah. who got to see it, right? And I think when they went into Bethlehem, they probably had to take turns. Some some team had to stay back with the shepherds. I, I hope they did it in shifts. I hope they all got a chance. It, <laughs> they all weren't first, but hopefully they all got a chance. And I hope that that's how the gospel works. That... Um, that we'll be able to to do this. And the other, th- that we'll all be able to to see Christ. And that we'll all be able to have, even if it's not quite exactly at the same time, I hope we all get there. It should be at the exact same time, but the reality of the fallen world is that that's not going to happen. The other thing I wanted to say about shepherds is there's later rabbinic, uh, quite later rabbinic material that talks about shepherds having this sort of nasty reputation. But that's not really what's going on in the biblical uh, parallels in the biblical era mm-hmm. because shepherds they were poor right they were lower right. class but they yeah. were not evil they were not um, like outlaws as later materials you have a positive view of shepherds King David was a shepherd Psalm 23 mm-hmm. has uh, the Lord is is, is, is my shepherd uh, John Jesus called himself the, a shepherd a bunch of times yep the gospel uh, the gospel of John has John 10 has uh, Jesus saying I am the good shepherd so shepherds were positive but this is another right. example of of Jesus didn't show up in the halls of privilege. People nope. on the bottom, on the margins of society, uh, that's where ju- that's where God shows up. God does not show up Indeed. in the rich Indeed. halls of Salt Lake City. I'm just sorry. That's not yes, God's pattern, right? God <laughs> yes, can sir. show up there if they listen to, to uh, listen carefully and listen to what God's already doing on the margins. Yes, but, um, but yeah, you can see this is God's pattern. God's pattern. Um, you can see yeah. this clearly with the contrast of Caesar 
the divestment of privilege you have with Jesus and the claiming of privilege you have with Octavian, um, mm. Caesar Augustus. So what were you going to say about the shepherds? I mean, this was a question that I had, um, you know, just as you were talking, a question that I had throughout. I mean, as soon as I got to this part of the reading was, why was it the shepherds? Like, why did they get to be the first ones to hear about the Savior's birth? Why wasn't it the, um, it, it, like, it's not the religious or the political leaders that get to hear about this first, that get the heralded announcement, at least as far as our record is concerned. Jesus makes pretty clear how he feels about these people, though. Uh, when we get to his ministry, he makes it clear how he feels about the religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the day and the wealthy. Like, it's not them either. It's not the learned scholars and the lawyers or the theologians. It's the shepherds. Like, why are they the first to get this news? And I think you touched on a big part of it. Um, like, there's no explicit reason given in the text, but there are some considerations we can make uh, based on the role that shepherds had in society, how shepherds are regarded and spoken of elsewhere in the text. You've already highlighted one of them, uh, them being of lowly station. Shepherding was a humble occupation. They're the lowest or among the lowest members of society. And God has a history of speaking to and working through the people of humble means, the lowest people in society. We saw it several times in the Hebrew Bible to the point where it almost seemed like God deliberately worked through those folks to show their power. Mm -hmm. Like we saw it with Joseph. We saw it with Moses. And you already highlighted David, who was himself a shepherd and the last born. Uh, one of the regular messages on our show is that God works in the margins, chooses the outsiders, the otherized, the lowly in station, to bring about God's messages and purposes. that That's like one of the biggest considerations that was on my mind when I wondered to myself why it got to be the shepherds. Another consideration is, you know, the kind of people that the shepherds were. We see several allusions to shepherds in the text, and uh, Jesus will give us the parable of the lost sheep and call himself the good shepherd, like, like you said in John 10. Uh, you know, the character of the shepherds seems to be that they would leave the 90 and 9 to find the one. You know, they might do exactly what you said, Derek, take turns in terms of uh, receiving the message and also going to Bethlehem to see the child. Jesus also identifies himself as the good shepherd in John, continuing to say that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep and the sheep know his voice and follow him. Um, like Christ's comparison of himself to a shepherd seems to indicate that he regards their dedication to their flock highly, or, you know, at least their occupation highly, and that he has perhaps the most in common with a shepherd. I don't know, which brings me to, you know, another consideration that I found on Twitter a little while ago. Um, now, like considering the circumstances, Derek, uh, if yeah. you got some good news to tell, like these angels did for the shepherds, who are you going to tell first if you got some good news? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> right. And why are you going to tell me? Uh... Because you're the closest? Yes. Yes, Derek. Because I'm the closest to you. Because I am one of the closest people to you. Like, that is what is... Like, that was, like, the first thing that, like, went in my head. Is that... Is it possible that because of who the shepherds were, in terms of who they were, do they have a closer relationship with deity? Like... If God wanted to tell some good news, might they tell those closest to them first? If that's the case for God, then we ought to consider the theological implications of God not sharing the greatest news ever through the religious leaders of that day, but through the shepherds. 
Like what set them apart? What made them closer to God than those leaders? If that's what we can assume, like, was it their social location? Like their, uh, uh, location on the margins? Was it their humility? Was it was it the action that they would likely and did take after receiving the news? Was it the fact that they'd lay down their lives for their sheep? Meanwhile, the religious leaders of that day seemed to love religion more than they loved God. Or perhaps another reason that the shepherds were uh, first to hear instead of the religious leaders of the day was to shame these leaders. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus did a lot of that by the time he got to uh, his adulthood. Perhaps they should have been the first to know. Maybe they should have been the first to know. I don't know, uh, given their spiritual role in society. Uh, But because of the very things Jesus would accuse them of in his adulthood, including their religious hypocrisy, that honor of enunciation was taken from them and given to folks who actually deserved it and embodied the kind of spiritual stewardship that Christ would while he was here on earth. It's like the parable of the great banquet uh, Mm -hmm. in in terms of this. That's what it feels like. Uh, You know, nobody showed up, so none of them got to like... All of them had an excuse, so none of them got to taste of the supper. So Jesus just brings these people from the streets. And uh, that's what he did with the shepherds, perhaps. Uh, The people who were supposed to be in a position to receive the news were not in a position to. So Jesus went to the shepherds. But anyway, I'm just thinking out loud a bunch. Bottom line is that God trusted that information, one of the greatest and most important revelations in the history of humanity, with the shepherds first before the religious leaders who presumably found out like everyone else. Um, it, it's worth considering that such important revelations would start with the lowest regarded members of society and work their way out for mm-hmm. similar reasons. Mm-hmm. It contradicts, and you know, you already talked about this, Derek, but I'm going to reinforce it. It contradicts what we are conditioned to believe in the church, that revelation will always come from the top down. We've said it before on the show, but sometimes the brethren are not the first to know, and sometimes their mm. revelations are sparked by issues brought to their attention by others. You already talked about Cornelius. He knew before Peter. We discussed it with Moses when it came to those who wished to be included in the Passover, or Moses with the daughters of Zelophehad, who mm-hmm. had no provision in the law that allowed them to uh, inherit from their father. We talked about it with Joseph Smith, with uh, Phoebe Peck and Anna Rogers, who had no provisions for them in the law of consecration as constituted at that time. The story of the shepherds makes more room for this idea that God can and will reveal incredible truths to all people, all people, but through the least of these, which brings me to the last observation I want to make about them in verse 10. The angels told them that this message is for all. Considering the station of the shepherds in society at this time, the fact that the message of this magnitude got to go to them indicated that the message was indeed for all. There can be no doubt that the message is for all people if they are the first ones to know. And just like they can be the first to know, like can it not be more so or just as so in the church when it comes to certain revelations? Might the least of these know before the leaders of our church know. It's entirely possible. We've seen this in our history. We've seen this both in the latter days and anciently that uh, the least of these can very well know before, you know, the people who are supposed to be the leaders of the church or whatever. And right. um, that should that should transform the way we operate uh, in the church as ministers. We, we should be should. ever mindful of the people that are on the margins. We should be ever mindful to include their voices. I think for real justice to take place, uh, this has to include and focus on the people who are typically left out of the conversation or those who are typically pained most by what is going on in the world or by the institution. And I think the shepherds give us one more reason 
uh, to do that. You know, I'm going to have a lot of stuff to say on this because of course. that's one of the blessings of not preparing is now all the leaders get to see, well, what connections did I make out of this, <laughs> which we wouldn't have got if, if I just planned everything and and, for, and forestalled where the spirit is moving moving us mm-hmm. or where we're, you're moving me. I want to talk a little bit about priorities because this is okay. something culturally we've got. We've got a problem with in our, in our church culture. Say so, more. So many people, when, when they talk about what a good Latter-day Saint is, they have certain check boxes. And a bunch of these check boxes I haven't done. Like a good Mormon man is supposed to do four things. One is, is get your Eagle Scout. Two, go to BYU. Oh, actually two is go on a mission. Then three is go to BYU. And then four is marry a woman in the temple. Now, I haven't done any of those four. I've literally done all four. (laughs) Right. You've literally done all four. And I haven't done any of those four. And I never will. I'm too old to get my eagle. I'm I'm too old to go on a mission. I'm never going to marry a woman in the temple or outside the temple. And well, I might end up go going to BYU, but that would take a few miracles. Uh, for for an advanced <laughs> degree, but anyway, my point is, like, I haven't done any of that. Like, there's so many check boxes. Like, did you pay your tithing? Did you, um, did you, uh, you know, do the ordinances? There's this whole anxiety about ordinances. Like, people, God doesn't even care about these ordinances as much as gasp, Derek. As he doesn't mu- care. As much as uh, now, now mm. there's a piece that God cares about the ordinances, but it's not that important as compared to loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, and then most importantly, loving God. Like all these ordinances are, are side issues. Like Jesus literally says, uh, quoting Hosea, God, you know, God loves mercy more than sacrifice in, in these offerings. Like that's not the point. Like you can do all the offerings in the world. That doesn't count if you don't have mm. love. Like, mm. I'm just thinking about um, how we major in the minors. Um, in, in Matthew 23, <laughs> we're going to get to that, where, yeah. where, where Jesus says people have paid their tithing, but they've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like love and justice. Like, hello, mm. I'm the one that's always screaming about love and justice. And then mm-hmm. I get I get seen as unfaithful because I don't have all this anxiety about, oh, Derek, you're not sealed to anyone. Oh, no. You know, it's like the hokey pokey. You got to stick your, you know, your right foot in and your right foot out. And if you don't do the hokey pokey exactly the way that God wants, you're out of the kingdom. Like, that's not how God works. You don't know the uh, God who wrote the scriptures, who who shepherded Israel through all this mess. Like, you don't know God's priorities if you're focusing on these ordinances, like that's not that's where some of the brethren put their thing, uh, put their priorities. Like you gotta, you gotta have a temple marriage, and I'm I'm about mm-hmm. to say every marriage is a temple marriage, and I'll explain that. I probably don't have time this week, but I'm gonna say maybe <laughs> next week because we're gonna talk about the temple later in in Luke chapter two. Okay, but I want to quote because you talked about shepherds. I want to quote two things. One is from John. 10, 11, and 12, which you already started to quote, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But Jesus says, the hired hand who is not a shepherd and does not own sheep sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. 
As an LGBTQ person in the church, my experience of many church leaders is they're like a hired hand. They refuse to divest privilege. They refuse to get down and get the same treatment that the uh, the vulnerable sheep are getting. Like the good shepherd lays down life. There's no more divestment of privilege than dying in the place of your sheep, right? But the brethren of this church seem to want to protect themselves. Like you can see this in the way that they speak in conference, in the way that they do interviews. They don't want Very to carefully. be vulnerable. They don't Very want carefully. to put themselves in any place where they don't control the conversation. They don't mm-hmm. want to be accountable to any cross-examination. They don't want to get any questions publicly that they don't already have the answer to. Like they want to protect themselves while my people, the sheep, are literally dying by literal gunfire after some of our leaders have called for figurative musket fire. Like this is literally not good shepherding. This is hired handing, right? And I have the right to, to name this because God's people have always named this. Let me go back to Jeremiah chapter 23. The moment you started talking about shepherds, I, I, I in my, my head like went, ooh, Jeremiah 23. <laughs> I'm gonna read. Of course. So Jeremiah is talking about, I'm gonna call them church leaders. It's anachronistic because they're not church leaders, but they are the... Um, spiritual authorities in Israel, the people that are responsible for the people. Here's what Jeremiah has to say. Uh, This is Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Quote, because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Close Hmm. quote. Now who's missing? The way the church leaders of today are shepherding this church, there's a bunch of people missing. Indeed. Bunch of people missing. There's a bunch of people of color who would otherwise be here. There's a bunch of LGBTQ Mm -hmm. people who otherwise would be here. There's a bunch Mm -hmm. of people with disabilities who otherwise would be here. This church is not friendly to many categories of people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We got to do better on this. And our church is, is doing a little better on some of these. But we need to do more. Mm hmm. The Lord says the strongest warning to those who are shepherding and tending God's people. Anyway, so that's kind of where I wanted to go with uh, Jeremiah 23. Speaking of marginalized people, let's talk about women. All right. I want to say— Are we going to talk about Anna? Well, first I want to talk about Mary, because Luke okay. 2, let's verse 19 Mary. says, But Mary treasured up all these words, pondering in her heart what they might mean. And I'm like, mm. this is Mary as a theologian. We've got women theologians mm-hmm. in. Uh, we've already had Mary as a theologian in Luke. And I'm not going to say Luke is perfect about women, right? That's not going to be the case. 
but I think Luke does a does a better job of incorporating the voices of women than some of our church leaders today, right? There's a there's an honored place for Mary. There's on a on an honored place for Elizabeth. They share God's word with each other. They they teach. They prophesy. They lead others to to Christ. They bring Christ to others. Um, Anna is literally a prophet. A woman prophet or prophetess is how some people would say it, but I'm just going to call her mm-hmm. a prophet, right? Um, and as a prophet. And so many cases we've got where Luke, and I don't have the, the time to go into all of them, but in many cases Luke will pair a story about a man and a story about a woman and have it kind of yeah, equitable. Yeah. Like you've got the Annunciation to Zachariah, you've got the Annunciation to Mary. You've got this thing with Simeon, which I'm probably not going to talk much about. And then you've got a parallel with Anna to um, Simeon and Anna, two older people in the temple courts, who get to see in their old age the Christ child. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And of course, Anna is the same name as Hannah, um, uh, the mother of Samuel, who dedicated her son to the Lord at the temple, although technically it was the the tabernacle at the time. Um, And I just want to name that the the Jewish tradition has seven women prophets. Um, If you look at the Talmud, uh, you've got Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, which we've now named in Greek as Anna, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. And there is absolutely room for women's, uh, women as prophets, even in the New Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul talks about women prophesying. Like, there are women prophet, prophets in the church. That needs to be restored. Let me say that. President Nelson, if you are listening the Office of Women Prophets need to be restored. You talk about an ongoing restoration. The restoration is not finished. It will not be finished until we have the equality of all genders in this church. Now, I just want to pause and say women's ordination in the church by itself is not enough. Like, mm-hmm. I've been a member of churches where there's the ordination of women, and it's still not perfect. It's still not equal, right? right? There's there's still disparities. In, in rank, in status, in, in funding, in salary, in um, honor, um, in, in churches where you have the, the ordination of all genders, you still have a great imbalance as to who gets the power and who gets, who gets uh, selected and all that other stuff. So here's what I want to say is in addition to restoring new women prophets, we need to have repentance top to bottom about the patriarchy in the church. We cannot just, and our church has done this so many times, they just paste something on top of the problem, right? We can't just paste women's ordination on top of a patriarchal structure. We've got to root it all out. And I'm not yeah. an expert on what that's going to look like. It needs the input of, of, of women and people of all genders to know exactly what that's going to look like. Right. But we absolutely have a precedent for women prophets, um, women's leadership, uh, women in decision making. I don't know. I'm not going to tell women what they should want or what it should look like. <laughs> but what I'm saying yeah. is there's a scriptural precedent for us doing better on this. Um, and I'm, I would never tell women that they all have to be ordained whether they like it or not. It, it would be completely it would be open to women. But I'm not saying that all women should be ordained. I'm not going to... All women should have the option. Right, right. What I'm saying is we should not, in advance, discriminate against women just purely based on their gender. That just makes no sense to me. 
Right. I wanted to say, um, let me actually read, because it's important enough to read the, the text here about Anna. I don't know if you were going to do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. Here's okay. what we've got uh, in. So we've got the presentation of the temple, which I'm not going to really talk about. Um, we have the earlier, the circumcision uh, and naming uh, of, of Jesus, which I'm not going to talk about. I mean, we could talk a lot about about that. Um the prophecy of Simeon. There's a lot of 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 cool stuff there, but I'm not going to get into that. Here's here's what we've got: Luke two verses thirty six through um, thirty eight, uh, and and of course they went to the temple for the for the purification um, after the birth of Christ. So here's what it says. I'm reading from the New English Translation Bible. There was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, having been married to her husband for seven years until his death. She had lived as a widow since then for 84 years. She never left the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came up to them, that is, uh, the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and the baby, and began to give thanks to God and speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, notice uh, there's a bunch bunch to notice. Now, the Greek is a little bit ambiguous as to whether she lived 84 years after the death of her husband or if she lived as a widow up until her age of 84. It's not quite year. It's, it's literally... Um, that she lived as a widow until 84 years. So we so that could be a little bit ambiguous. But my point is, here she is in the temple. Now, I want to pause, and someone had a question about women in the temple. Now, in the second temple, there were... Well, first of all, in Greek, there are two words for temple. One is naos, which is the central shrine. This is the actual place where you've got the Holy of Holies, and then... Um, the altar, those things. And then there's the larger temple courts and temple grounds, which is a much larger compound. And the word um, for that is Hieron. And so when Luke is here talking about the Hieron, uh, talking about the temple, she never left the temple. It's the, it's the Hieron, the, temple, the larger temple courts. And there were multiple courts outside this, the Naos, this central shrine. So, uh, and it's sort of concentric. The, the first is the court of the Gentiles from the outside. There is a court that the Gentiles could go in, and then there is a demarcation that they could go no further. Then after that is the court of the women. It's not women only, but it's the last place women can go. Um, and this is probably where Mary met Simeon and where Anna was. Beyond that, you've got the court of Israel, which is for Israelite men. And then in that, you've got uh, the central shrine. And then the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go. Uh, and that was only once a year. And so that's kind of where they were. Um, and so she's here uh, in, in the temple. I want to quote from the, the, the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary on Anna. And I, th I think it's really, really cool um, how this puts it together. And so the, the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, I think, is the best Bible dictionary. It's a multi-volume work. It's, it's quite expensive, actually. But um, that's the best Bible dictionary that's available here. So here's what it says. Um, I might just actually read this whole thing. 
an elderly and especially devout Jewish widow portrayed in Luke 2, verses 36 through 38, who should not be confused with the Anna of Tobit, a a deuterocanonical book. Strikingly, Anna is the only woman in the New Testament called a prophetess using the Greek noun form of the word. Now that I'm going to pause and say, I think Jezebel in, in Revelation is also called a prophetess, um, but I'm not sure if that uses the... Well, anyway, I'll have to look that up later. Thus, she is to be understood, that is, Anna is to be understood in the light of such Old Testament figures as Deborah and Huldah. Comparisons should also be made with the intertestamental figure of Judith. We, now we talked about her last week. Of Judith, who, like Anna, was devout, lived to about the same age, 105, and did not remarry after her husband died. That's in Judith 16, verse 23. The Lucan material raises the question of whether or not there was some sort of Jewish order of widows who had specific functions in the temple, for example, to pray. This might explain her apparently constant presence in the temple. It should also be noted that, according to Luke's portrait of Anna, she, unlike Simeon, goes forth to proclaim the good news about the Messiah. That's amazing, I think. This foreshadows one of the roles assumed by female believers in Luke's two-volume work, compare Priscilla in Acts 18. It is also possible that Luke intends for the reader to see parallels between Luke 1 and 2 and Acts 1 and 2, in which case Anna anticipates what will happen when the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh and both sons and daughters prophesy. Uh, This is at the the Pentecost miracle. Yeah, the Pentecost. Quoting Joel chapter 2. There may also be some truth in the suggestion that Anna is portrayed by Luke as one of the Anavim, that is, the pious Jewish poor. Because while she's a widow, she may have been poor, I guess is the logic. Although Luke doesn't spell that out, uh, that connection directly. And also Luke doesn't spell out that there's an order of widows in the temple, but, but but that's the question we're asking. Like, was there something like that? Luke does not seem to have a special, oops, oh, the pious Jewish poor, Luke does seem to have a special interest in such people, and in view of his theme of reversal of fortunes, compare Luke 4, 17 to 19, this is the, you know, preach good news to the poor, that's literally what it says, he seems to promote women like Anna as examples of how the gospel affects human lives. Anna may also be seen as a model of faith in action, one who responds positively and properly to the coming of the Messiah. I just want to go back and reiterate in the text what uh, Anna does that Simeon doesn't do. It says, At that moment she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, it doesn't record her words. I would love to have her words. We don't have those words. Uh, We need more women's words in the church, right? But Indeed. Um. I also want to say, what is what is this talking about in terms of the redemption of Israel? Now, it, it, either Luke or Anna is uh, appealing probably to Isaiah fifty-two verse nine. Here's what Isaiah says. Now, this is this is at the time where we're comforting Israel and we're restoring Israel after the exile. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people; He has redeemed Jerusalem. That is what Isaiah says. This is the redemption of Jerusalem that Anna is talking about. And I think it is so cool that 
it is because Anna knows the scriptures well. She's in there praying and and she's the one that gets the you know gets to see this this Christ child. She knows the scriptures well, therefore she is most ready for revelation. Knowing the revelations we already have and engaging them to the fullest extent is how we get more revelation. That's literally line upon line. Like people are telling me that I'm somehow unfaithful because I'm expecting more revelation. Like, well, that's what that's what prophets are about. Like line upon line, like I'm doing everything with the line we're on. And that makes me so eager for more lines, right? More revelation. Um, I'm I'm very anxious for more revelation on the church on on many issues. Uh, but that's what I wanted to say about Anna. What did you wanted to say? <laughs> I mean, you basically said all of it. I did want to name that uh, Anna was the only person named as a the only uh, woman named as a prophetess in the entirety of the New Testament. But you know, you did. Bring up Jezebel and all that, and uh, I mean, you said all that and more, so I don't think I need to add anything. To oh the conversation no, I Anna. stole your thunder. Oops. It's fine. I said, like, as long as what needs to be said gets said, I really do not mind. It's it was said, and that's all that matters. Um. So yes, let me look at this. Let me look at the Greek text of Revelation two twenty. Um. Hey, legusa heotain prophetin. Yeah, it's the same word for prophetess, the, the 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 feminine form of the word prophet. Um, now she's not a true prophet; she's calling herself a prophet. So maybe that's what they're meaning when she when they're saying that that Anna is the only named prophetess in the New Testament. But um, but Jezebel calls herself a prophetess in in Revelation mm-hmm. two twenty. Uh, well. but anyway, so. So I wanted to go. Oh, what, I'm I'm probably eating up all of our time. This is bad. Well, oh it's, no, it's spent. I'm only halfway done with everything I could be saying. I'll have to talk more about the <laughs> temple later. Um, uh-huh. I just want to name a couple of like bullet points, and and people will just have to fill fill out the, the fill out the the details later. In Luke two, okay. we've got the lost Jesus. First of all, Jesus and his family are showing up to Passover. Which means Jesus was raised to be a rebel. This is literally. Now you cannot celebrate Passover in an occupied Israel and not think about the liberation of Israel. Like you just can't. There is an, a, an obligation. Now this is post-biblical. But there's this obligation to commemorate the Passover as though you were there. right? To remember it and actually imagine that you're there. How can you do that? And not think about being liberated from Rome, like you have, like it just makes so much sense that Jesus was raised with rebellion and resistance, and um, separatism in is one of your topics, uh, separating from Egypt, right? Mm. So that's one thing I just want to put a bullet point. Two, let's talk about the biblical family because. People say, ooh, biblical family, biblical family. Let's talk about a biblical family because here's what happened with this biblical family. We've got extended family here. We've got Jesus and Mary and 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 Joseph. That's three people, but that's not the party that they were traveling with from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover and back. It was multi-generational. It was extended family. It was a large enough group that they could lose Jesus. I cannot overestimate this point. 
that the biblical family is way bigger than these what what Mormon Instagram looks like. You know what I'm talking about with these like cute white <laughs> families. Yeah. With I'm not saying but all Mormons know. are white, but the pictures I see, there's a lot of cute white families with all the little kids, and then the sun and the light and the glowing and like this this cute like you, I can just look at this and I'm like and that's a Latter Day Saint family. But anyway, that's they look not, like families that wouldn't lose a child. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So here's how how they was. did is they they probably thought oh Jesus is with the cousins and the cousins thought well Jesus is with the uncles and like. They were all all over each other, all in and out. Like it, they they literally didn't know where Jesus was for three days. Like that is what family is in the biblical world. I would also mm-hmm. want to pause and say that family in the biblical world includes enslaved people. So that's another wrinkle in the whole thing. But family is mm-hmm. is just very different than than what we think. This post nineteen fifties. Uh, nuclear family that's not a biblical family so how dare people look at me and say family 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 in some manipulative crushing exclusionary way so i'm just going to pause that i want to i also want to name that like part of family is constructed in is is the church right the fact that we in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints call each other brother and sister is a redefinition of family because we're not biologically related, at least closely. Like we're all all humans are related. All humans share one, one, one bloodline, which should inc- which should exclude racism, by the way, but somehow it doesn't. But we've redefined family. I'm I'm a brother. Um, I want to say, Jesus, this whole why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I was must be in my father's house? This is in Luke two forty nine. The way that Jesus understands obedience is sideways and unpredictable. I'm not saying Jesus was exactly disobedient ultimately, but Jesus's obedience, Jesus's behavior is more predictable if you know the scriptures and the power of God. You'll understand what he does here and, and there and everywhere. There are so many places where Jesus does not really manifest himself as obedient to power structures. And even when he is obedient to power structures, he does it in a subversive sideways way where he says basically, well, I don't even have to do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway just to flatter you. This is the whole Matthew 17, paying the temple tax. He's like, who who owes the tax, the sons or the foreigners? And and Peter's like, well, the foreigners. And like, yeah, we don't know this tax either, but go, this must be comic actually, go throw a line, get a fish, you're going to be coining the fish, take that and pay the tax for us. That is how little he cares about um, <laughs> about about authority, right? Um, so we've got this, uh, we do not have in Jesus a model of obedience to ecclesiastical authority. He was not obedient to, to religious leaders. He was not submissive to religious leaders. When people are telling me to be Christ-like, it's going to be disobedient to to religious leaders. So I wanted to 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 name that. Um, we could talk a little bit about that more on another another uh, week. And people, well, let me just anticipate one objection. Well, people say, well, at the time of Christ, they were all apostate, so of course he wasn't going to be obedient to this to people that didn't really have authority. Well, yeah, that may be that may may be true. That's an oversimplification, and there's some anti Judaism in that too. But if God really wanted the model of Jesus to be one of obedience to earthly um, religious leadership, this is how God would have done it. God would have said, okay, I'm going to restore the church again and have faithful leaders, 
and then have Jesus born into that and be faithful to a an orthodox pure authoritative church structure but no that's not what what the example is like if you want me to be Christ like it's not going to be pretty Christ wasn't pretty like that's like that's what we're going to see all throughout the gospels I want to say one more thing about Luke And then this is Luke 9, uh, no, Luke 2, verses 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. Like we've, this has been quoted many times. And I just want to put a plug here for the concepts of stages of faith and growth and development and maturity. So many people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints have the same view of God as when they were a primary kid or when they were on their mission. There's no room for adult development. There's no room for maturity. There's no room for flexibility and nuance. Um, imagine if we had adults walking around having the same view of Santa Claus as when they were eight. We've literally got people with Santa Claus-type views of God. Never yeah. really, uh, unless like they're, they're queer or some other reason or some other uh, prompting has, has prompted that. There's nothing in the correlated material of this church that's really going to stretch you beyond um, this fundamentalistic literalism and and, uh, primary or correlated level. But there's definitely room for growth, development, and maturity when you look at our sources, look at our primary metaphors for mortality and what the faith life is like. Um, The first one is the iron rod. Now, people say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's constraining. But literally, when you look at the iron rod in the Book of Mormon, you literally have to let go of the iron rod and move your hand to a new place on the rod. It's about growth. It's about development. The iron rod, every time you grab it, is designed for you to let go. There's certain assumptions about the Book of Mormon that we're going to have to let go. There's a certain assumptions about the, the leadership and the infallibility or not uh, that we're going to have to let go. There's certain assumptions about about gender, about race, about LGBTQ people that you're going to have to let go. We're just going to have to do some letting go. We're going to have to leave the certainty. We're going to have to leave that security. We're going to have to leave all the easy answers and get to a place where there's complexity. Like that is literally what we're taught in the temple. Adam and Eve, they left where everything was all tidy and went to where it was complex. They had to let go of the rod to move up to a different place on the rod. That's exactly what we did when we left pre-mortality. We, yeah, we could have been cozy with our heavenly parents and and just stayed there, but we would not have developed, right? Mm -hmm. One of our fundamental images for our journey is that of development, of growth, of progression. And people are, are, uh, are, are criticizing me of being faithless because I'm, I'm progressing, like, hey, like this, this makes no sense given our fundamental um, myths. I'm using myths in the good sense of stories that unite, narratives that give meaning, right? It's all about, uh, yeah, like there's people like on LGBT issues that say, oh, you got to hold to the rod. And what they mean is hold to the rod like super glue and don't let go and don't even change your place on the rod. Hmm. Right. If people took these images seriously, take the teachings of our church seriously, if you look at, I mean, Brigham and Joseph both had a bunch of mess, but a lot of what they pointed to and what they were trying or God was trying to point to through them is that of more knowledge, more light, more, more insight breaking into the world and not leaving us 
orphans, like having the spirit with us to be able to guide us into further and further truth. That's why one of our uh, articles of faith is we believe that all God, we believe all that God has revealed, all that God does now reveal, and we believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So why isn't there room for people like me in the church who actually believe that? Why? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> you sure, my friend? Yes. Well, don't ask again, or I could think of something. I'm sure you could. But uh, yeah, that would probably be best if we just ended it there. Thank you for sharing those thoughts, Derek. Very important thoughts, and uh, certainly some things to ponder on. I have nothing else to add, so before we wrap up, Derek, can you tell folks where they can find us? Um, they can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, now that now that you're listening, I want you to invite other people to listen. Uh, we've, we've taken a break for about six months, but we're back, so tell other people about us and, and, and share the good news. Uh, there are a lot of people that could, could benefit oh, from hearing us. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Derek, did you hear, um, I don't know if you listen to Mormonland, the podcast. Um, no, I didn't listen to it, but I heard that you're referenced. Okay. Because, like, on Mormonland, somebody suggested that evangelism, like, Sharing the gospel should be on the temple recommend questions because of the way our membership growth is going or, you know, not going. Oh. So somebody like a researcher, like got on the internet, got on their podcast and basically said, if we want to increase our membership, maybe make, uh, you know, proselytizing part of the temple recommend interview questions. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. Just this idea that we got to like preach I mean, yes, as part of our membership, we should want to preach the gospel anyway. But if we like, if mm -hmm. we end up making that a temple recommend question before we end up making something related to anti-discrimination a question, I'm going to have a problem. And mm -hmm. I was just blown away to like hear that even be suggested. It was wild. It was wild. Like, yes, tell a friend, but also make telling a friend part of your membership in the church and whether or not you can get a temple recommend. I'm going to have a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much. Um, the temple should be a blessing, but it it's ends up as a tool of control, a tool of exclusion, a tool yeah. of discrimination. Um, it yeah. should be a house of prayer for all people, but it is now a house of discrimination. And uh, yeah, bro, our leaders aren't answerable to that. They're they're building more temples rather than actually making these temples better. Uh, homes and dwelling places for god i could ramble on about the temple have, for another 30 minutes so let's let's not do that and i would just have a much better time evangelizing in the first place if you know <laughs> this wasn't part of who we were as a people like the discrimination and stuff like it's not that i have right. difficulty talking about my faith especially in a seminary or you know with anybody in general but like inviting people to come knowing like that all this stuff is going on, especially in the advent of social media and the ad, like at this particular moment in history with all this stuff going on, LGBTQ rights, Black Lives Matter, yada, yada, just mm -hmm. we have not been at the forefront of a positive end of any of these conversations and like trying to invite people to come to church in the midst of all of it is one of the hardest things for me to do. Like, mm -hmm. 
yeah, anyway, we could talk about this for a while, but I just wanted to ask, like, based on you telling people to tell their friends, I just wanted to ask if you had heard that. No, I haven't. But I think one of the key pieces of evangelism is we got to make the church better and then invite people to it. Yeah. And then we've got to invite people that will help us make it better. Right. It's a, it's a, it's, it's both together. Um, but there's this idea in the church that uh, the leaders have figured out everything and we just got to invite people to what they've already figured out. I'm like, no, we've got to be the type of place that's welcoming and opening up to the new stuff that out outsiders will bring. Like God is right. not finished with this work, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this just reminds me again of this shepherd business, in so many cases, it appears to me that the leaders of the church are protecting their own image. And you can see this in the fact that they never apologize, right? If I yeah. were a church leader, I would apologize when I mess up. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. I, 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 I've messed up a bunch, like, and I'm willing to be accountable. Like, um, like that, if, if, if the good shepherd lays down their life for their sheep— why can't our leaders lay down a, just a little bit of their ego? Why can't they lay down a little bit of their power? Why can't they lay down a little bit of their their comfort? Right? And a good a good example of this would have been if Elder Holland, after the musket talk, said, whoops, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we know Holland Holland is hot headed and he's gonna he's gonna say the wrong thing, right? Not that that's an excuse. But what we should do is the reason why he should apologize is so that people stop using his words and stop defending them. Mm-hmm. Because as lo- until he apologizes, people are going to say people are always going to choose Holland over me on this. They're going to choose muskets over me. I mean, that does not feel good. Holland right. is is wrong on this. And um, and I'm glad that you called it out. And uh this led to a problem where the leaders of the church decided to exclude you from from the Deseret uh, system because of something you said. So they literally protected themselves over the sheep. Like this is literally the, the what the hired hand does. They're protecting their own image and their own rep- reputation, engaging in censorship and and wanting to to like punish criticism rather than lay down their lives, right? I'm, uh, I'm wishing we had um, some better shepherds in our church. Wow, didn't it? Mm-hmm. I wish you could be. I wish you could be a church. I, I wish, let's make you an apostle. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening, but uh, very wishful thinking. Um, but hopefully we can at least make the church the kind of place where, you know, somewhere down the line that, uh, you know, people like us can actually can at least still be here. Yeah. If not, but I, th- if we can't, be I leaders. honestly think I'm not going to live to see that. Like I have 30 to 40 years left on this earth. And I don't mm-hmm. think the church is going to be a home for LGBT people in 30 or 40 years. I will for the rest of my life be in a church that is not a fit place for me to live. Hmm. And sobering uh, thought, my guy. Yeah. I know this is this is a mess, so uh, we need to, we need to get on that. now. Of course, the Lord could surprise us, but of course, um, 
hopefully that happens. I'm not looking forward to to the next 30 to 40 years as a, as a church member. It's going to be a lot of work, but uh, yeah. we'll talk about that another day. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm talking way too much. Anyway, <laughs> so everyone, hopefully you will raise some of these points in your uh, in your uh, come follow me classes. I don't know if which wards have scheduled what. Um, I'm not. I don't know if uh, this for is. the most part, this is second Sunday of the month, so this will be yeah. Priesthood and well, anyway, society. Um, some of the 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 primary and some of the other courses, uh, the young men, I think, and young women will be covering that. I think they're covering this. So there and there are going to be people that are, that cover this every week. It. So yeah. So anyway, that's a lot. I probably should say <laughs> goodbye. Sounds good to me, my guy. Okay. Thank you all for tuning in till we meet again. Yeah, till we meet again next week with more Bible and more jokes.